And each one begins with that he hoped that we were still alive and doing okay and so on. And the end also ended with prayers. And occasionally he would address something. On my birthday, he would address something just to me. So I think transracial alliances are very, very important. It causes stress, daily stress on African-Americans that us white folks aren't even aware of. But that's when it came out that he was a member of the Nazi party. One thing I wanted to mention is just a, a, a tie between your, your Appy's diary. One thing you, you quoted Dr. King and he said, this, it was a terrible silence of people that allows certain things to happen. And do you feel, I'm going to transition it back to the, the better homes, but it seems like is, if there was a, do you believe if more people spoke out against the injustices of fair housing, redlining, even the appraisals, and wouldn't be silent on the bench that different things would change because there's a whole bunch of terrible silence that occurs because everyone lets it go through and it's not affecting us. So no one cares. Absolutely. But don't you have a feeling that we are a little bit at a tipping point that there is more speaking out about these issues? But I mean, you can talk better about that than I Sometimes. I think social media helps that. I, I think like this platform here and social media, it stays in the forefront. Even with YouTube, people are now, it goes viral quickly whenever someone is unfairly treated in the housing yeah. administration or unfairly treated in any sort of uh, governmental system. It goes viral faster, but it seems like it's a quick flame that dies out. And then we're on to the next one. It's a flame and it dies out. And that's the problem, I think. I think, to, to, to your point, Smiley, I think that there's attention brought to it much more quickly than in the past because of the different platforms that exist today. So there's social media, things like that. So we know immediately if someone feels like they've been discriminated against based on the housing appraisal they mm. receive. We know immediately if someone feels like um, they're mistreated um, you know, it was right to the loan they were trying to, to, to acquire, et cetera, et cetera. But the challenge is the momentum that's needed to keep that information going forward doesn't exist. During the, um, and this, this is kind of a bit of a tangent, but I think during COVID, when the world was literally shut down, these things were brought to light and we were almost forced to pay attention because we weren't, we didn't have anywhere to go. We we're stuck in the house. And so we saw, you know, Black Lives Matter, that movement really explode. And, mm-hmm. you know, with, with all that that, 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 that that took place during 2020, that year, essentially, and then 2021. Now everyone's back to normal, you know, they'll s- scroll past and say, oh, so what was this discriminated against? And then they go back to their their day, I think. And so it's, it's forgotten about. With, based on that, if you had a magic wand, let me ask you, I know Smiley and I have my ideas, but let me ask you, being the, concerning the research you've done over the years, if you haven't had a magic wand, where 
would you start? Where, where, what's the root, right? Where you enact change, knowing that that change would be a domino and create, you know, all the other necessary change to ensure that there's, you know, more justice and and um, equality in, in, in the world that, that we live in today. Where, where, where would you start? Yeah. Yeah, I'd certainly like to hear your perspective since you are living it. And I, I will recommend a couple of books that if you haven't read them, okay. you absolutely have to read. Um, but my... I would not, I'm skeptical of magic wands, but I think the beginning always has to be the local. And I'm beginning to see that here in South Bend, um, that people all over locally are doing things, are working on helping the uh, establish homeless intake centers, not just you know places to live, but places where they can be looked after and given the possibility of a future and so on. I see it in the in the black areas, uh, the uh, where people are working to improve their neighborhood, and it is a transracial alliances, which I think are very important. Um, that. We all have to work together in order to create that momentum sure. you are talking about. But I always feel very humble talking to people like you who are really living it and have a way more intimate personal perspective. Although, you know, just before you came on, a guy from Better Homes, who's now the president of, we have a Martin Luther King Jr. Senior Men's Club in town, says, told me, and I was so moved by it, especially since I always feel a bit homeless. He said, you are part, you are a major part of our Better Homes family. You've actually brought us together again because we do have meetings and we do things together and so on. And he said, you are our part of our family. I was so moved by that, that, you know, here this white woman who's written about the Nazis and, you know, all that is sort of accepted in, in the Better Homes family as part of the Better Homes family. So I think transracial alliances are very, very important. Um, as to whether it's enough, right now one is clearly concerned, right, about what's going on nationally. But I think in the long run, even the sheer numbers will work out, right? The demographics are going to change. And I think, but you know, who wants to wait 40 years or so? But it will happen eventually, I, I do believe. It's amazing to me that so little has happened in America talking about, and you know, in schools, how little has, how little the kids know. No wonder they are not engaged, right? And, and how much they're they're now going to be deprived of. So so my, my, my two thoughts and, and the smile, you tell me what you think too. Um, again, the, the magic wand for me would be knowledge and exposure, right? So education, educate the, educate the un, uneducated because that's the group Absolutely, that, yes. that, that suffers the most and then perpetuates the the craziness, the nonsense, right? Because they just don't know any better. 
And that's not an excuse. That's just a fact. And then exposure. So those alliances you talk about, right? So I think education, knowledge and education and exposure would... would... Absolutely. You are right. Education is crucial. And because much of it is really ignorance, right? Much of the discrimination is a result of ignorance. Yes. I find that most of your xenophobia comes from ignorance. Most of your fear of others come from ignorance. And and, and you mentioned education, Andre. And, right. and you mentioned this also. You mentioned when you came to the States that your education was so good when you were in Europe that you, you were able to graduate early, or I think it was in the video. Now, Andre and I discussed this. When we say education, it's like saying, I want to go to Europe. And the next question is, where in Europe? So when people say education, you're a trained uh, English professor or historian. But when you say education, is it specifically you need to learn a trade? You need to go to college? You should be a physicist? uh, You should learn math? Or how do we get to the next layer of education to affect social change or anything? Yeah, but I thought Andrew was talking about the very first layer, right? In school, kids need to learn the real history of America, not Mm -hmm. this uh, imaginary story of, you know, the people who came and got freedom from England and everything was good. They need to learn the the actual story, and they don't. They just do not know it. I agree. And they need to know what's going on now. It needs, you know, and right now, I think many teachers are very frustrated that, you know, there's even pressure not to mention anything, you know, that critical race theory or something is thrown at them. Um, But education is crucial for the next generation. Do you have any hope for the next generation? You go first, Miley. Oh, I have a lot of hope. I have a, oh man, I, I'm a type of guy. Tell about the three glasses. <laughs> I, I, I'm a sales guy and oftentimes I, I sell software to companies and a lot of times the engineers or different people say, well, we can't sell. And I was like, it's the way you look at a situation. So you can have a cup with 50% in it. Some will see it half full. Some will see it half empty the engineer will see 50.001 ounces, whereas a sales guy sees three cups because we always see something that's not there because we see a better tomorrow. No one buys anything unless they want a better tomorrow than today. So I see hope everywhere. I uh, That's why I was, I, I was so excited about when you talk about the stories. I wanted to know if there was anyone coming to you with like, my life has just been so beautiful and everything is rosy and I just want to share my joy with the world. So I, I see a lot of hope. Yeah. And, and I, I do too. I do too. Unfortunately, I don't have a, a, a vivid uh, illustration like, like Kevin has. You can tell he's a good salesperson, but, but I, I, I too am very optimistic by nature. So I believe there is hope. Um, I, I have two children, um, one's a teenager, one's a preteen, and I, I, I have to have hope, right? Because I want them to live in a better world um, tomorrow than what it is today. And so with that hope, I use that to make sure that I'm part mm-hmm. of that change, right? 
the things that I do, the way I carry myself, that I'm part of that change, which is clearly some the way you, you live your life in part at least, right? With this book, Better Homes, and I'm going to circle it back to Better Homes real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump into your recent book. But with this book, Better Homes, stories like these are key to the education we all talked about, right? Because with understanding the challenges that were faced, we have a better appreciation of what do we need to do to ensure we can eliminate at the very least decrease these types of things happening today, right? What can I do? Who do I need to talk to? Whether it's, you know, not to get political, but whether it's voting, whether it's again, educating, um, whatever it is, these stories, Gabrielle, are so, you should have seen Smiley and I earlier this morning talking about you coming on board. We were like two little two little schoolgirls giggling with excitement about you coming <laughs> on board because again, these stories are just they're they're they're, they're key, they're um, they're compelling, which is nice, um, and they have a critical place right in our culture yeah. as we try to make this shift into a more to, to a better culture for everyone. Right, not just for minorities, but for everyone as a whole. Um, and so, with that in mind, let me let, let, let you respond. And as part of your response, can you also tell me how this story came to you? So, I'm going to respond to that. Um, I uh, want to mention at this point because you're sort of referring. Do you know? Uh, he's actually a friend of mine, but he's also an amazing ethnographer, Elijah Anderson. Have you? Do you know his work, Code of the Street? Is sort of a classic, but what you, what we all, what mainly actually us whites have to read, is called. Where do, where do I have it? I want here. Oh, as black and white space. It, it is because one thing that it is talking about is the burden and the struggle every African American, no matter how they how high the education, he is a Sterling professor at Yale, which is the highest rank at Yale. Um, but mm. he faces often ignorant, sometimes deliberately racist remarks when he's out about in his life. And mm -hmm. he's describing these, and us white people have to know because we may say something that we don't even think is hurtful, that, you know, I hear people say, and that is obviously, I, I cringe, oh, but you are not like the others, right? To saying that to a black person. Because in their mind is what um, Anderson calls the iconic ghetto, that every white person somewhere in their mind has an image when they see a black person, say they're out at night and there's a black guy walking about, the iconic ghetto flares into their, you know, subconsciously into their imagination. And that makes them say things like that. And he says that what I found so painful to hear, that for a black man, except even like him at the very pinnacle of his world, uh, acceptance in the white world is only provisional. You never know when there is that moment, he calls it the end moment, when there is that moment that somebody says something that just, you know, sort of puts you in your place. And that, and when I talk to my black friends um, 
who also are highly educated uh, chancellors and, and so on. They all can give me so many examples. Leroy Cobb would tell me he was in his 80s. He was successful in his life and he drove a Cadillac that even a man in his 80s would be stopped by the police to show ownership of that car. Um, you know, and Leroy was one of those really positive ones. He just brushed it all off. But it causes stress, daily stress on African-Americans that us white folks aren't even aware of. And that book is sort of helping us to understand it. Um, and for African-Americans reading it, it will be a confirmation of their experience, but maybe also helping them how to deal with it. Because he's not only a foremost ethnographer, but he is an amazing storyteller. And he will tell stories mm. of so many people and their experiences, including his own. And he's from South Bend. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, and, and I'm sitting here smiling because I didn't realize that South Bend had so much so much his history. Uh, prior to meeting Andre, I don't think I know anyone from South Bend or anyone who had a connection to someone in <laughs> South Bend. So I'm just learning. I'm so fascinated yeah. about what's going on. You hear about Atlanta, you hear about Alabama, but here we are in the North in Indiana with South Bend, or you hear about Chicago, Detroit, but I, I, I think Better Homes is putting South Bend on the roadmap, especially from a historical, racial, influential facility or city, because I'm just astonished. Oh, and I should mention, it's mm -hmm. going to be made into a play. And a wonderful playwright, Colleen Jennings from American University in DC, is writing the play. And we've had the first reading, and we were all in tears. You know, <laughs> I know the story backwards and forwards, but I cried. And when you actually see you know, the scenes enacted and the suffering of the families and so on. And it will be performed. Uh, the play will first be performed in November 23 in South Bend, but they hope that it will go beyond that because she has written a lot of plays. Awesome. So do you know where in South Bend on the 23rd? We, we may come up for that. The South Bend Civic Theater, our main theater. Um, Kudos to the director who wants to make this a civic theater, not just a white space in Elijah Anderson's words, but a space for the whole community. Awesome. And so uh, he's doing the August Wilson cycle and he's going to do Better Homes of South Bend. <laughs> I, I know um, Andre wanted to transition into Appy's Diary. And there was a theme that, that you said in there that I thought, I, I took notes on it, and I, I can't wait, awesome. wait to read the book in total, but you said something called inner immigration, where you keep your head down. Uh, I thought that was a, a clever term because it, it's a lot of times we see ourselves doing that when we see something that's wrong and we just, it's going back to the silent, terrible silence. But yes. when you said the word inner integration, that stuck with me. I was like, and I, I was talking to my wife. I was like, you know what? When we see something that's not right, you got to say something or at least you got to voice yourself. Because exactly. what do you think is the, is it peer pressure or, or sometimes I do the inner, 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 inner immigration when I'm alone, I see something and there's no even, not even peer pressure, but 
is that something we're conditioned to do or is it a learned behavior or is it cowardice or courage or lack thereof? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends very much on the environment, right? In Nazi Germany, speaking out could bring you the death sentence. Even listening to the BBC, if they caught you, could bring you the death sentence. So people were scared to speak out. And then they talked about that was the term they used, inner immigration. They were not supporting it, but but inner immigration doesn't change anything, right? I, I just wanted to bring it contemporary because I, I don't know if you heard within the past three days, this lady in Saudi Arabia got 35 years for using a TikTok because it was something that she wasn't supposed to say against the government. And they gave her 35 years for a TikTok. So I'm thinking... And all she did is forward it. So that's probably that whole culture there is not going to say anything. They just moved into a state of inner 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 immigration because this lady got imprisoned for 35 years for sending a tweet or a TikTok. Did you hear about that? Uh, that's the danger of totalitarianism and fascism. And that's clearly one of the main things right now we have to ward against, right? Because once we are there, we are kind of lost. Um, but it was also used as an excuse in a way by the Germans, right? And yet I kept asking myself, what would I have done? You know, what small acts of courage or cowardice would I have committed? For example, if you walked on the street and there was some Nazi officer or so in the Nazi or SS in his black uniform, you were supposed to give the Hitler salute when you passed him. Would I have had the courage to not do it and have the danger of him grabbing me and taking me to the Gestapo because I didn't do it? Or would I have just, you know, given the Hitler salute and in order to be safe? I really don't have an answer to that. I'm not a hugely courageous person. I don't know what I would have done. And we have to ask ourselves that, and, you know, we clearly mustn't get to a stage where we are in a world like that. But there's lots of countries in that position. But but as I pondered that, um, uh, and I'll let Andre go next, but as I pondered that, I, I Andre, I'm a father, I have a daughter, and I've realized that when my daughter came, she's 15, my behavior changed because in the sense that if something would have happened in my 20s, 30s, I would have argued with the police officers. I didn't care. It was just me. But now I'm a little more cowardice because I'm like, okay, if I get arrested, go to jail, What's her future life? How is she going to go to private school? How is she going to do whatever? So you're more tolerant as you live for others, because now you're just like, I don't mind getting abused myself, but I need wow. to be here to make sure she's okay. So I'm going to let this go. I'm going to tolerate it so I can create a better tomorrow for her. And I find that being a father and having a family yeah you carry the burden because you could be the hero for the moment, but then the rest of your legacy suffers versus let me endure this so they could be the flower that blossoms into something beautiful. Oh, yes. Wow. That's, that's powerful. Yes. Yeah. That is powerful. So, um, so we know this story about better hopes and gardens. Um, I do want to talk about, your most current book, but before I do, quickly, how did the story about South Bend come to your attention? It was Leroy Cobb, he, a gentleman in his 80s. Um, 
I was supposed to meet him at a coffee house and they said a gentleman is 80s and I looked in the coffee house. I didn't see anyone I thought was that old. He was so elegantly dressed yeah. that he looked, you know, in his 60s, I think. But it was Leroy Cobb and he told me about the story. And I said to him, that's actually one thing I do want to say about myself too. I said to him, I know nothing about the African-American uh, neighborhoods. I'd lived in the city for over 10 years. I'd never stepped foot in an African. I wasn't even aware I was avoiding it. It just wasn't part of my path. I would go to the university, to the stores, to the theater, all in white space, right? And um, I said, I really know little about that. He said, no, but you've written so many books and, and uh, this story needs to be told. And even the African-Americans in South Bend don't know about it, which was true. Nobody really did know this until I wrote the book. And he was so insistent. He's, and, you know, he was an old man and he had been the youngest member at the time of Better Homes. And he so wanted the yeah. story told that I thought it's my job to do this. And um, my gain was, this is the other thing, how much we lose. My gain was that somebody now says I'm part of the Better Homes family, that I have yeah. a whole community of black friends now, that people, even some yeah. blacks come yeah, to me yeah. for connections to other black folks in town because I'm so well connected now. I have gained so much. Do you know, by the way, the Heather McGee book, um, The Sum of Us? what racism costs all of us and how we can prosper together. It's making, clearly racism affects African-Americans way more than whites, but she makes the case that uh, racism also affects whites. And I think my case is an example. I lost a whole community and a whole huge number of friends that I would have never had if I hadn't got engaged in this book. And uh, I did not know that when I set out. I knew I had to do a lot of research and had to meet a lot of people and so on. But it was such a huge gain for me. Smiley, a pos positive story. It's really in all the you know, struggles I'm describing, a very positive story. No, thank you for sharing that. Well, and just another thing, how little we are... There are now two state historic markers in South Bend for African-American history. Both of them I got, to, and they are the first ones. There is otherwise no mention of African-American history in South Bend. We have state historic markers for everything. You know, they are very beautiful and permanent and so on. And I have one for Better Homes and one for J. Chester Allen, which is right in downtown. But those are the first ones which shows again, how whites, maybe without realizing it, aren't aware that there was an African-American history. So on a personal note, your most recent book is more um, personal, I think you would, you would agree, uh, Appy's Berlin Diaries. Tell us a little bit about that book and how that came about. Uh, well, that, in a way, like Better Homes, was another book that fell into my lap. After my mother's death, I found those diaries. They were high up on a shelf behind books. I don't know whether they were hidden or just stashed there over the years. And 
those were diaries my grandfather kept while he was a doctor in Berlin in 1945. That's, you know, when you said in the introduction, we had left, my mother, grandmother and I, my father had already been killed in the war and only my grandfather stayed behind because he was a doc doctor. And he described the horrendous condition, you know, the day and night bombing, the medical shelters, which didn't have water and didn't have light. The stench was everywhere. The For dead sure, were yeah. stacked outside. I mean, it was it was a nightmarish uh, situation, like probably scenes that are happening in the Ukraine right now, for all I know. Um, and he described that. And he wrote each entry as a letter to us because he was so desperately alone. He often was homeless himself. He was sick himself. He also tried to survive himself. And the diary, in fact, in a way, was one of the things that helped him survive, that he hoped, uh, you know, there would be a future. He didn't know whether we had survived. We were refugees. He had no idea what had happened to us. And... Uh, it was that and his face, that sort of, and nature. There wasn't any nature left in Berlin because all the trees were charred or destroyed, but he could see the clouds and the birds. And he, whenever he had a quiet moment, he would write about that. And he would, he was always a writer and a bit poetic and uh, sentimental too. Um, he would write about the clouds and how the sun lit up the rafters because he looked out on Berlin, the inner city where he was near the Reichstag and the Brandenburg Gate, was 90% destroyed. He didn't even recognize his streets. He had to, you know, go through cellars of houses and climb over rubble to get from one place to another. So um, I was going to tell that, but then that also brought up memories of my, you know, the, really the happiest years of my childhood with him after the war after I had been moved around a lot and had scarlet fever and so on, he insisted that he I come to live with them. And uh, even though we were still refugees in these one and a half rooms, but he was just wonderful. I mean, he played games and he, we walked and looked at the stars at night and he, he always was educational. He would explain everything. And I just really loved him. So that also comes out in the... The picture of him holding you when you're about three or four is adorable. I saw that on the YouTube and and that was such a, a, a inspirational photo. But the question I have is with you said he wrote letters. Did he write letters to my granddaughter, to my daughter or to my family? Because um, I think that's an amazing way to personalize your journal, which says I'm writing this to the future because I I want you to read this about how I. I'm, I'm thinking about you, even though you may not be here, but yeah, how was it? What was the salutation? Was it to you? Was it to, to family? Yeah, he read it. He wrote it to all of us. And each one begins oh. with that. He hoped that we were still alive and doing okay and so on. And the end also ended with prayers. And occasionally he would address something mm -hmm. on my birthday. He would address something just to me. And, uh, you know, he oh, did hope beautiful. he would all be able to read it at some point. But that's when it came out that he was a member of the Nazi party. You know, I saw that as I read more into the diaries, I suddenly realized 
that's what it means. I, I saw these references to PG, uh, which means Parteigenosse, a member of the party, but you know, there was so much awful stuff to read, I was so overwhelmed, I didn't pay attention until finally I realized it meant that he had been a member of the Nazi party. And then for two years, I just kept silent. I hid the diaries again. I didn't even tell my husband. I felt so, I've always been ashamed of being German, right? A German of my generation who immediately, even now today still, I get, you know, Germans, the first thing that comes into people's mind is Hitler and the Nazis and the Holocaust. And, and you know, that's still very much there. And that was very present when I came to the States. But you, you know what's fascinating with what you just said is that you said you sometimes you felt ashamed of being German. And, and I, I would think, not think, but in my youth, I used to be ashamed of like, well, all right, I'm an African-American in this country. Why didn't the Black people during the 1800s, 1700s protest? Because I didn't know any better. But as I learned about the history, I found out there was way more than just Nat Turner. There was a lot of uh, Black Wall Street. So people were always fighting and struggling. So that gave me more pride and heritage. And and it, when you think of it, and that's where I, I wrestled with the accountability versus responsibility, because as we just touched upon briefly, if we're trying to protect our loved ones, our family, sometimes you have to fall under suit to make sure you're here to pro pro promulgate the life. So you may fall under the auspices of something that's nefarious, just mm -hmm. so you can get along to get to that next generation or something. And, and I find education eliminates the shame I felt of, like, why did my grandfather fight or my great-grandfather fight? And here I'm finding out that they didn't have a house for me and we struggled because they were redlined against and all the laws were against them. And I just thought they were, as the common theme is, lazy and exactly. didn't want to do better. Exactly. And I found out that they had the weight of the world against them that, to do better. Yeah, so it gives great. me a sense of courage and inspiration. And when I read that your, or I saw that your grandfather was still a doctor during that whole thing, maybe in order to help people because he was a giving person, he was helping people. And the best way he could help and save people was to be a part of this nefarious organization. I don't know. I'm just stretching, but, but you know, that gives pride. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah, no, I, I think that's beautiful, but what I was struggling with was the thing of political responsibility, right? How much are we responsible for the acts of our government? He will write, and I know I wouldn't have done it any different. Anything, any speaking out would have got him killed and his family, you know, without any support. There was really no way to to speak, or very little. You know, there were some brave people who did and who risked their lives and who died in the process often. But, you know, it's what where's our political responsibility. I do not believe in collective guilt that all, you know, that was often the thought after the war that all Germans are monsters mm -hmm. and, you know, responsible. Yeah. For, but there are degrees of political oh. responsibility, right? You can ask yourself, was there an occasion where I could have done something 
without jeopardizing my family and so on, and where I just didn't. Um, I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing we deal with our consciences about, right? We have to ask ourselves about. And um, I'm sure I failed on many such occasions, you know, where I could have done something and didn't. And what they say when you go to therapy is just by acknowledging something, that's how you can make it better. Because sometimes we're not aware of certain things. But I wanted to, at the one of your videos, or we mentioned it earlier, you have a call to action to help people with their stories. And I was just, just on volume. I think the date of the video was 2019 or 2021, somewhere around that. Would you say hundreds, tens, tens, hundreds, or thousands of people have said, hey, Gabriel, I want you to help me with my story. Or are you getting an over, uh, overwhelming uh, outpour of people like, help me, help me, help no, me? No, not, no, not, not that, that many. many. Just uh, No, not that many. Um, I It's hard to put a, uh, you know, some did and then didn't, uh, we didn't do it for long or so. 25 maybe or so, but it's in that order. Nice. It's not thousands. Not thousands. <laughs> and I'm sure there are thousands. I couldn't deal with thousands anyway. You know, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that's awesome. And one follow-up on that. So let's say hypothetically Andre or I came to right. you and say, oh, I got this amazing story of joy. Do you give yeah. them a methodology yeah. for writing a story or, right, or do you just say, just write it out or just brainstorm it and just get it all going or, but you're, you're a professor of writing. So you have a talk. systemic writing, right? I would talk to you about it first, right? Mm -hmm. Because I need to know where you're coming from, what the aim is, what are some of the major points you want to make? Do you have any particular stories that need to be in there? What is the length you're thinking about? Is it an essay or is it a book? Uh, yeah. Or is it a collection of stories and so on? And we would go from there and develop, you know, but it's in the end, it's up to the writer, right? But I can, and then I would read it and would say, here you need to give more detail or here you are repetitive or here we are, you have to take the reader along that we don't understand or, you know, things like that. But always asking questions and having the person respond because in the process of that conversation, things will become clearer to the person who wants to write. And that's what usually awesome. happens. You, oh, yes, I didn't think of that, and so on. And oh, we go awesome. from there. It's a process and a journey. Awesome. It is. And you should enjoy <laughs> the journey of it. That's the whole point, right? Like with anything, you should enjoy the journey because it is a journey of discovery and you don't quite know where it will lead you. And uh, it's important to enjoy that. So there's a lot of joy there, Smart. Ah, thank you. <laughs> well, so um, these are our final three questions. And uh, Smile and I will rotate back and forth as we ask you these final three. So these are super easy. So um, the first one is, if you, could, if you could have dinner with just three people, right, who would they be? And why? And they get any three to come to mind, dead or alive. Well, some of them are the authors of those books, but I don't know whether that counts because I've had dinner with, uh, certainly with Elijah Anderson. Um, 
And it's wonderful what you learn, you know, beyond what he has written and so on. You learn more of the backstory and, and so on. But um, I love uh, the essays of Montaigne, for example, you know, way, way back. He wrote essays about everything, whether it's about being right. lazy or being a drunk or, you know, important spiritual matters. Whatever came to his mind, he really invented the kind of personal essay. He would go up to his uh, room in a sort of tower of his little mini castle. He okay. had a kind of castle. He was a landed gentry. And he would just whatever came to his mind and write about that. And from a very, very personal perspective, what he was okay. thinking. And it's just this eclectic okay. group of essays okay. that you just love to go from one to the other. Um, so I do like him. I like Anton Chekhov, a Russian playwright and storyteller, who within three lines can capture a person. You know, you know what the, you feel, you know this person. And he can do this in a few lines. I would love to know how he did that. Um, All right. Awesome. Well, here's a second question. And it's, uh, I know you don't like magic wands, but when you look at yourself and your introspective, what would you say is your superpower? I think I'm really good at connecting with other people. I would agree. And helping them understand, sometimes understand themselves. I mean, that goes with writing too. My husband is always amazed. I meet someone and within a few minutes, we are into a deep conversation about their lives. I just am interested in people. I love people. And I think I have a way of connecting with them. No, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a beautiful superpower. Uh, almost like <laughs> empathic. So that's cool. Yeah, I would agree. And then this final question is, if you think back over your life, what's been the fondest moment, fondest memory in your life? Oh. It's probably something to do with my grandfather. Mm -hmm. You know, like scenes when we would, he would, we would build kites together in, in the fall. Mm. And, you know, he would balance the, the sticks and so on perfectly. And I get to draw a dragon's face on the kite because in German, kite means drachen, mm. which means dragon. And one day we were out there and it was such wow. a blustery day. And the string was too strong. The pull was too strong for me to hold on. I was maybe 10 years old. And he ran with it. And a patient was greeting him from the street and he looked up for a moment and then he disappeared. And I rushed to the spot where he was. He had fallen into one of those drainage ditches in Northern Germany is a very waterlogged oh, no. area. And he was sitting there holding onto the yeah. kite and just <laughs> laughing. And I went down with him and we laughed and we saw the kite fly high above us. And it was such a beautiful moment. And we, yeah. ha we had many like this because he wow. had a joy in life um, and in the moment. And I yeah. think that is that is very, very important for all of us, right? To really fully appreciate the moment and enjoy it. Like, by the way, I enjoyed talking to you and getting oh, to know you. you a bit. I think that was really important. We appreciate well, you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. We appreciate that. Yeah. So, Kev, anything you want to share with Gabrielle? 
Um, I'm so, so honored to meet you, Miss Robinson, Gabrielle Robinson. I can't wait. I watched the YouTube videos, but on my reading list is The Better Homes and The Abbey's Diary. I'm going to read your books and, and all these authors. Thanks for sharing those authors. And, and I'm just excited that I have an opportunity to meet you and for you to expand my horizon. Yeah. So we look forward to seeing you on the 23rd in South Bend at this play because it's going to be on my calendar. Oh, great. So, I will let you know. Awesome. Thank I will you very let you much. Know. Uh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. You, you guys are wonderful. Thank it's you. really, it's a different kind of interview. <laughs> you know, so personal and I just see you smile. Oh, di different good, though. Different good, <laughs> not different bad, right? Different yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, just, so, um, you know, it's it's a different thing. So I wish you good luck with your future interviews. And we appreciate that. We appreciate that. Thank you for your time. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye bye.